Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Ruth chapter 4 as we look at the God of all comfort. Nowadays, especially, I don't know if you've noticed this, but especially with superhero movies, uh, we anticipate really the end credits of a film. That seems to be what everyone wants to watch. You'll go to a theater and you'll see people that the film ends and you know, usually go through all, but everyone is sitting there. No one is moving, no matter how much they've drunk or whatever, uh, soda or whatever, they are waiting for those end credits. You cannot miss what's going to happen in the end credits. And that's one of the things now that TV shows and things of that nature have, have instituted in their films either to get you so you watch the end credits or just as a way to anticipate something to put a little bit more excitement in there. Another fan favorite is the use of an epilogue, what we would call an epilogue. An epilogue is a, is a shorter edition or a concluding section at the end of a literary work, like a book, a movie, a TV series, so on and so forth. Something that tells us what is in the future of its characters. How did all things wind up? And we all love happy endings, don't we? Most of us, when we watch a movie or show, we want a happy ending. I do have one friend, Donna and I do have one friend that, that if he finds out that it has a bad ending, the TV series, the book, the movie, whatever it is, he will not watch it, no matter how good it is, how worthy it is of an Oscar, which really isn't saying much so much these days, or an award or whatever. Everyone wants to have a happy ending. And we get that as we come here to the epilogue here of Ruth. After spending several hours, we can understand that reading a book or investing in a character, we want things to turn out right. That's why we go to movies. We want to escape the harsh realities of life many times. Well, last week, Ruth, or not Ruth, but Boaz sealed the deal in bringing Ruth into his family. He was granted the opportunity to redeem Naomi and Ruth, and we see that he was uniquely qualified in that he had the position. He was a, a close relative. He had the power. He had the money, the resources to buy back, and he had the privilege. He was chosen by God. He was the one that God had chosen to act as the kinsman redeemer for Naomi and Ruth. As such, he pointed to the greater kinsman redeemer we spoke of last week, that Jesus Christ is, who was also uniquely qualified to rescue God's children from the curse of sin and death. And as I said before, as we come to Ruth chapter 4, verse 13, we now come to the epilogue of the story as we learn the love story of redemption of our three characters concludes, it ends with a happy ending, with a wedding and the birth of a son. So with that Ruth 4.13, the first verse is going to be here on the monitor, but the rest, I encourage you to bring your Bibles if you need one. love to give one to you. Just let me know at the end of the service. And here we read the narrator writes, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. You may want to underline that phrase, and God gave her conception. Father, I thank you for this. What a wonderful, wonderful truth. Father, that you are the God of all comfort. You're the source of all comfort, that you are in the business of healing and restoring, bringing joy. Father, even in the lives of these two women, Father, we want to sin see that you are also the same restorer and comforter here in our lives for the calamity and the tragedies we suffer through circumstances and, and our own consequences of our own choices. 
We thank you for your goodness towards us. Be with us as we study the end of this book. Help us as the Holy Spirit works in our heart to help us to interpret it correctly and then apply it as you would see fit so that we may be more like your son. Praise in Christ's name. Amen. We now come to scene two of act four. Remember, we're act four, scene two. It jumps at least nine months ahead in the future. This is the ending that we have been wanting. This is the ending that we are anticipating. After all that these women have suffered and experienced, Naomi and Ruth finally find joy, completion, and a future due to the kindness and generosity of Boaz. Now, we know that that comes from God, but Boaz is that human person which God demonstrates and displays his kindness, his generosity to these ladies. In one sentence, the narrator sums up the wonderful grace of Yahweh towards these two ladies. After more than 10 years of undergoing various calamities and tragedies, they find themselves enjoying the blessings of God. God honors the wedding union of Boaz and Ruth by opening up her womb and giving her a male son to carry on the name of her deceased husband, Malon. Once again, the narrator mentions that the women of Bethlehem remark on God's work in Naomi's life. Look with me in verse 14 of Ruth chapter 4. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned or renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons he has given birth to him. Now you might recall that when Naomi returned from Moab after leaving, the women of the village remarked, you can see it here on the monitor just to remind us, that who or is this Naomi? They looked at her and says, is this Naomi? They almost didn't recognize her because of all the things that she went on. And we had talked about this uh, several weeks ago, last month, is that calamity and tragedy, the, the sufferings of life, the, the hardships that we endure can, can take its toll on the body, on the mind, the psyche, so on and so forth. And they looked at her and says, is this the same? Ten years later, is this the same woman? And Naomi replied, do not call me Naomi. Remember, Naomi means pleasant or my delight. She said, instead, call me Mara, which means bitter, bitterness. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Again, now look at this. When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Now, the village woman recognized that despite Naomi's accusation and charge against God, and make no mistake, in her pain, in her suffering, she accuses the Almighty of picking on her. Have you ever felt like that? That everything seems to be aligned against you? It can be your boss, it can be your wife, it can just, it's just fate, it's just circumstances. What in the world is going on? Does the world hate me? In essence, we're coming biblically to say, does God hate me? What does God have against me? He's given me way too much. What have I done wrong? And this is what she does. But these women recognize that despite her accusations and charges earlier against God, God has now blessed Naomi immensely. 
Theologian Daniel Block notes that the speech of the women of Bethlehem can be divided into three parts. There's a blessing for Yahweh, there's a prayer for the child, and there's a declaration of confidence for Naomi. So look at that back passage again. First you see they praise God for, for, for providing a, a, a grandson to Naomi who will bring her joy and comfort in her old age. Then they pray that God will grant Naomi's grandson, as we're going to see, Obed, that he would grant him favor and that his name would be renowned in Israel, that he would have a great reputation, simply probably like Boaz, who was a man that was known to be worthy. And then lastly, they encouraged Naomi in that her grandson would be a source of restoration. God has not abandoned Naomi. Whatever she's gone through, the loss of her husband, the loss of her two sons, God is restoring things back to her. Not only just a grandson, but also the land and all the things that she had lost. But also that Obed would be a nourisher in her old age. He would be the one who would be uh, in charge of taking care of her as she's older. Remember, Naomi's probably in her 50s in those days. That's getting older. She can't work. She needs someone to provide for her. And Obed, as he grows, will be that one that will be taking care of Naomi. Now, they also point out that Naomi has been blessed with the loyal daughter-in-law who was worth more than seven sons. Now, that's, a, that's a kind of a silly statement, or kind of not a silly statement, but for you and I, it's like, what in the world that means? Well, in Scripture, seven kind of has a picture of completeness, maturity, of it being done. In other words, he's saying, you are no longer empty, Naomi. You always had Ruth, who was very loyal, it refers to perfection, completion. She's no longer empty. When they proclaim that Ruth was more to you than seven sons, that word more actually means pleasant and agreeable. It is like the same name as Naomi. The irony that though she was barren, speaking of Ruth, and could not give her any grandchildren, Ruth herself was worthy and valuable in God's eyes. At the time... Remember, Naomi couldn't understand that. She just wanted, Naomi, she wanted Ruth to go back with Oprah. Go back. Go back to Moab. But eventually she sees the loyalty. And it's how through Ruth's loyalty and friendship that Naomi was comforted. Now, what is wonderful about this passage is that this book began with a curse against Naomi's family. Her husband, Naomi, and her two sons. But it ends here with a blessing. One interesting point, it seems, is that the women of the village actually played a part in naming the baby. Now, could you imagine? This must be some type of village. Look with me in, in verse 16. Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. And look at verse 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born, uh, born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, I don't know about your neighborhood, but we haven't done that. Um, you know, we usually don't do that. Hey, everyone, what do you think about this name? You get to name my child. You might wind up with something like, I don't know. Uh, we won't say it. <laughs> Ulysses, uh, no, don't do it. That's, a, that's an actual great fictional book character, though. It really is. And you could ask Landon later about what all that means. Like almost every grandmother in the world, Naomi joyfully embraces her grandson. Now, it doesn't take much for me to imagine this scenario because I am a grandfather. And I've been joy of three. We're expecting two more. And when those grandsons, granddaughters come, 
it's a precious moment. I still remember my other, my three children when they, when we, when I first came, got them, and just I didn't waste any time. It's just, can I have that child? Just give it to me. The grandsons was even more, as it was something that just God's blessing. That's what my grandsons and granddaughter was to me, is God's blessing on our life. I was like, I don't deserve this. But this little child is something beautiful and wonderful. But this moment had to be even more special to Naomi, especially after everything she's adored up to this point. Naomi, at that point, was empty. Life had no meaning for her. I mean, if she was in Canada, she would be a candidate for euthanasia. That's the type of spirit Naomi had. I mean, Naomi was getting very close to the line where God might just even strike her dead for the accusations. He struck other people dead for a lot less. But what we see here in these these chapters is a turning. And this grandson is a wonderful point in which life changes for her. The narrator points out that she became his nanny or guardian. Now, when we see guardian, not garden, but guardian, now, this is not referring to wet nursing or breastfeeding, but what it means is, is she's the one who then raises him up because, again, he actually becomes her son legally in, 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 in many respects. She was the one who would raise him. He was the one that takes the place of her son, Melon. Now, the name Obed, as they named him, means serving. I think this is a great name for Obed because we're going to see that Obed will serve as a redeemer, Elimelech and his son's lineage and property will not be forfeited and given to someone else. Remember, there was no way they could keep it. Naomi had to sell. But because Boaz comes and, and buys it, and then he gives it back to Obed as Obed gets grown, he's the redeemer of the land, so he's going to serve, in which he's going to continue the line of Elimelech. But also we see he's the restorer in that he's going to bring joy and purpose back to Naomi's life. She has something to live for, something to get her up in the morning. But also he's going to serve as a nourisher. He's going to be a provider and sustainer and support for Naomi in her older age. The narrator also points out that Obed is the grandfather of David, the boy who will one day be the greatest king of Israel. We're going to look at that a little bit more last week as we close out the book of Ruth. However, as we go from observation to try to understand what is the Bible, what is this for, what is it trying, how is this uh, uh, profitable for training, for, for training in righteousness, for doctrine, for proof, and for correction? Well, in four short chapters, we read about the growth of Naomi through the calamities and tragedies of life. Things that many of us can understand. We've endured them ourselves. Ruth has progressed through this narrative. First she was a foreigner. Then she was a lowly servant. Then she became a maidservant. And now here she is, the wife of Boaz. She has grown in these four chapters. Naomi, who left Bethlehem with a husband and two sons, comes back empty and bitter not even realizing the worthiness of Ruth. To her, Ruth was just someone that she was going to have to take care of. Go back. There's nothing that I can give you. Remember, Ruth abandoned everything to follow her home. Yet by the end of this redemption story, we read of her being made whole, speaking of Naomi, full of joy and hope as she embraces her grandson and celebrates the marriage of Ruth 
and Boaz. However, there's more to this little book than the desperate tale of two widows. Despite the circumstances assigned to them by the decree of Yahweh and the consequences of their sinful choices, remember these two work together, Naomi and the line of Limanek are redeemed through the kindness and hospitality and generosity of Boaz. This love story is more than just a romantic tale of two people who find each other through calamity and tragedy, but it foreshadows the story of Yahweh, of God, who chooses to love Israel and by extension, the church for redemption. This love story, short love story furthers redemption theme of the story of the Bible that began in Genesis 3.15. Again, just as a reminder, uh, we'll speak a little bit more about this next week, but we see that there was a promise in 3.15 that God would send a redeemer. Remember, the story of the Bible is very simple as we have God. We, we see that God created all things and we see how wonderful, majestic how God is, but then we see the fall, the rebellion of man. The failure of man to conform to God's laws in our actions, in our attitudes, in our nature. So with that, we are plunged in the whole world into sin. But yet God says, I will send a redeemer. Right after he curses Adam and Eve, he says, I will send a redeemer. And the rest of scripture is now telling us that story of redemption. That's the, the chapter we are in, the theme of, of redemption. Until we get to Christ, we then see how redemption is accomplished. Right here we see again the glimmer in the background of judges where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The time of the judges was very, very evil. And we went over that last summer and you could uh, alleviate yourself very quickly by going through that chapter, especially the last four chapters of Judges to see how evil that period was. But yet in the midst of that dark land of Israel that time, there was a spark of hope. There was just a little bit of lightness as a man named Boaz, a worthy man, comes and redeems these ladies and gives us a son, Obed, who will point to the one who would be the king. And we find out in Judges that everyone did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king. So God here is just taking a, par a paragraph, break, taking a break before we go into the story of David next summer as that we see that God is working throughout history. The big idea of this passage that I want us to think of, the theme, is that God is sober, sovereign over all things. You and I understand that, right? Including being the giver and taker of life. We sung about that there with Job. As well as the source of all restoration and comfort. Sometimes we think of all the bad things, the hardships. Like Naomi, we get focused on all the things that God has taken away from us. We, we neglect to see all the blessings that God is bestowing on us each and every day, even in the midst of tragedies and calamities. And so with it, the big idea that I want us to share this morning is that God is the source of all restoration and comfort. First, you and I need to remember that God is sovereign over all things. There are no accidents, there are no coincidences or mistakes he has declared all things that take place, even calamities and tragedies. So we can think of whether it's tornadoes or earthquakes, firestorms, whatever it may be, cancer. All these things are decreed by God. All that has taken place in the life of Naomi and Ruth has been at the good, wise hand of God. 
We see God's sovereignty in this book in him bringing the famine to Bethlehem, in the death of Elimelech and his two sons, in the end of the famine, of, of, of connecting Boaz and Ruth. And we saw that in chapter 2 and 3, how that comes to be, but also in giving them a child. So we see the Lord giving and the Lord, or the Lord taking, but we also see God giving. But secondly, you and I need to remember that human choices are real choices that can bring blessings if we obey God, but also brings cursing if we reject God's commands. And many of us are in circumstances and situations of our own making because of our own sinful choices. Naomi didn't see that. She just wants to accuse God. She doesn't want to see the consequences of her own sinful actions. And we're the same way. We're the same way in many ways. You and I are going to be held responsible for our choices. And one day we will be judged by Christ accordingly. That's what scripture tells us. We see this action, this human choices, human responsibility, when Elimelech decides to leave Bethlehem against God's word of not to do so. We see his two sons then choose to marry pagan foreign women when they were told not to do so. We see Naomi then chooses to return to Bethlehem when she hears that the famine has gone. Then Ruth chooses to follow her and Naomi finally accepts the author. Ruth chooses and determines to find work and then Naomi schemes while Ruth proposes. And we looked at that, I think, last week. And so we see that God's sovereign will, but also man's human choices work together, even in the midst of calamities and tragedies. In the book of Ruth, Yahweh takes away food and provision and three husbands. But he also gives a loyal daughter-in-law provision, protection, a redeemer, a marriage union, and then a son whose descendants will include the king of Israel, who then eventually leads to the promised Messiah. Pastor Mark Dever out of uh, Washington, D.C. notes that Bethlehem goes from being a land of famine in chapter 1 to a land of fruitfulness. While Daniel Bach writes, you may see this on the monitor, that the story of Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi concludes with a glorious resolution of a fundamental issue in the book, the filling of Naomi's emptiness and the birth of a son through whom the loyal, royal line of David will eventually appear. As I've asked you earlier, the narrator points out that the Lord gave her a child, gave Naomi a grandson, and also has not left her, speaking of Naomi, this day without a redeemer. The God gives. Yes, the Lord takes, but the Lord gives, and he is the source of all restorations, the source of all nourishment. He is the source of all comfort that you and I are looking for in other places. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to first, or, excuse me, 2 Corinthians, near the middle of the New Testament, 2 Corinthians, chapter 1. I believe it's after the book Acts, Romans. You got the Gospel, Acts, Romans, then 1 Corinthians. What you and I need to understand, and this is very tough many, many times, but suffering and hardship is an equal opportunity offender. We only think that God is picking on us or that we're always making wrong choices. But we need to understand that life is not fair. 
all of us will have these things that we will go through. Now, I granted, there are many of you that have suffered much more than I have, and even some even less. But we have to understand that in all these things, God is the one who will bring comfort. Everyone will go through bouts of suffering and hardship. It knows no boundaries or rules or of adequate etiquette. To some degree or another, we will suffer. We live in a world of suffering. It is a broken world. The scripture informs us that even creation itself groans with the sufferings of the curse. How you and I view suffering, and this is important, please, how you and I view suffering as Christians is very, very important. For many, suffering is a sign of bad luck or bad karma. Or uh, an idea, well, you get what you deserve. Or what goes around comes around. Some may view suffering as a result of sin or bad deeds as, as, well, you only reap what you sow. And there is a sense of that. But there's also a sense, like we see in the story of Job, that sometimes bad things just happen because God decreed it to be. Or many will believe, well, <clears throat> anything that bad happens to you must be a sign of God's judgment and holding back a blessing. That was an Old Testament and also a New Testament concept that they thought, who sinned when he speaks of the lame man or the blind man? This man or his parents. We're taught in this world to avoid suffering as much as possible. We neglect it. We deflect it. We just deal with it. We drug it. Yet we see in this life, in the life of these two women, suffering comes from God's decree and from our own choices in life. Many times the same. And so you and I need to look at our lives. Whatever suffering, hardship you're going through, that is God's good, wise design for you right now, but it's also from your own choices. Now that's difficult to understand. Now, now it might not always be for your own human. If you're suffering from cancer, you're suffering from some physical disability, that may not come. But many times when we're saying, well, hey, I'm struggling in my marriage, I'm struggling in my finances. If you look back, you'll see that these are probably things in which your choices have led this. Now, that's still God's plan for your life. And that's hard to understand. But as we see, God is testing you. He's trying to draw you and strengthen your character. You see, in this life, these two women are suffering from both things. However, as God brings suffering and hardships in our life, he is also the source of the comfort to help us endure it and get through it. Just as temptations don't necessarily come from God but are ordained by God, he makes a way of escape in the same way that when he does decree that hardship comes, or when hardship comes from our own decision, he is the source of comfort and nourishment and restoration. The Apostle Paul understood this spiritual truth intimately as he writes, read with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. You need to know this short passage. Chapter, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verse 3. Where once again... Just as we sung earlier, and just as the women of the village cried out, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all what? God of all comfort. Underline that. Highlight that. Who, in verse 4, comforts us in all 
our afflictions. Not in some, not in just a few, but in all our afflictions. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted for God. So God comforts us so that we may comfort others when they also are suffering from hardship. There's Ruth right there. Ruth was able to comfort Naomi, even though Ruth herself was in mourning. Look at verse 5. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. For if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our what? In our comfort. Now this letter to the church of Corinth comes at a tender time in the relationship between Paul and the church of Corinth. There's division, there's factions, there's risks, there's hurt feelings. Paul has been maligned and ostracized in every church he began and ministered to. After a painful visit and a very severe letter, there seems to be some repentance on the part on behalf of the church and a desire to reconcile with Paul. However, one of the accusations against Paul by the by the um, the false teachers was that Paul suffered too many problems to be a real apostle. In other words, if you were a real apostle, you wouldn't be suffering so much. And we get that th same thing. They, they, they get what they deserve. God must be punishing them for self-something. So we step away. Isn't that how many times we, we treat those that are homeless or those that are down and out, down and out in their luck? They just deserve it. There's no way that God must love them. They're suffering from God's decree and the bad choices of their own. He must not have God's blessing. However, instead of bemoaning the many trials and tribulations and sufferings that he endured, Paul finds comfort in them and realizes that even the hardships and the sufferings are beneficial to his ministry to others. And that leads him to praise God. Lord, thank you that you have given this to me. I now have to patiently endure it. Give me comfort and strength to do so, so that when others, I meet others, that then I can encourage and embrace them as well. Hence why I believe the greatest counseling that you can have is church counseling. Not only just from the pastor or the elders, but from each of us. For all of us have experienced different types of suffering. And the best comfort is those are the ones who many times are closest to it and can understand it. So the very problem you're going through, whether it's the creed of God or the circumstances of your own bad, uh, sinful uh, choices... Repent, confess that sin, and look for the comfort that God is wanting to provide to you. He does not want to leave you desolate. What was our, what was our opening verse here once again? This is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. And what is this promise? That I will never leave you nor forsake you. These are the promises of a God who loves us 
and cares for us. I want to give you three things Christians should know about suffering. And I can give these to you, so follow along with me. Number one, if you're taking notes, it'll be up here, so it'll make it a little bit easier. You can write it down, take a picture of your phone, whatever it might be. But you and I need to understand that suffering for Christ is to be expected of all those that deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. So there is suffering that you and I will suffer, have to endure, because we are Christians. Because we have chosen to follow Christ. This is not speaking of cancer. This is not speaking of of even financial issues. Though it could be. If someone is generous and gives to the church, sometimes that means you may have to sacrifice in other ways. However, this is a suffering that comes from the world that is hostile to our faith. And many times we cry out, why, 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 O Lord? So God may strengthen us. And comfort us. Christ's suffering here, when we read about Christ's suffering, that we may abundantly share in Christ's suffering, is not talking about the atonement. He's not talking about putting you on the cross, as some they do in, Philippi, in the Philippines and other uh, Hispanic nations sometimes, where they, where they mirror the crucifixion of Christ. But it's the suffering for obedience to the Father. When you and I imitate Christ, and let me share with you, when you go against the grain, we're seeing this more and more so today. Cancel, culture, you know, CRT, all these other things, is that to stand up for what is right, for what is biblical, is going to cost you. And you need to mark this down. It's going to cost, cost you maybe your reputation and, your, and, your, and, and, your, um, and the friendliness of your neighbors and friends. Because you want to stand up for that which is right. It will cost you. For some, it's already cost them their jobs. Ask some bakers, painters, candlestick makers, anyone who wants to stand up for the things of God. We ourselves, we know people in our congregation who have endured hardship and suffering because their children have rejected them because of their faith. I don't know how you find comfort in that. But God promises that he is. Jesus said, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents as innocent as doves. Beware, for they will deliver you up. Now this, he's he's warning his disciples, but this is coming down now through the generations and through the 2,000 years, the millennia, through us as well. As we now see pastors being put in jail. By the way, there's a, a documentary out called Essential Church. I encourage you to go see it. It's in a few movie theaters. It was about uh, Grace Community Church and several pastors in Canada who were shut down and sued because of COVID because they would not stop worshiping together. This is the time we are. One lady in England, she was praying in front of an abortion clinic across the street, not on the sidewalk, but across the street. The police arrested her. Why? Because she was praying silently in her head. She wasn't praying out loud. And when they asked her, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just praying inside. Are you, are you speaking out? No, I'm just praying in my, they arrested her. Now, fortunately, she was later released. And we think, well, that's England. That's Canada. We're coming closer. California is pretty much Canada. In many respects. Afflictions and suffering are not alien to the Christian, but actually, listen to this, a mark of faithfulness. And not so much how we suffer, but 
no, 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 what we suffer, but how we suffer, how we view it. You know, given the reason for the joy or the hope that's found in you. How can you be comforted when life is just throwing you lemons? How do you find joy in that? Because of Christ. God is my source of comfort. Not, pharma, not pharmaceuticals. Not per- personal uh, pleasures. Not entertainment. But God is my source of comfort. Paul suffered through many imprisonments, countless beatings. He was often near death. He goes on to say, five times I received the hands 40 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. He goes on and on. You and I, our life cannot even compare to his. And he was what you and I would call a super apostle, a super Christian. To be like Christ means to accept suffering, to endure it. But also, number two, not only does it be expected, but suffering for Christ mirrors and extends the ministry of Christ. Jesus was a man of sorrows. The Bible tells us that he was despised and rejected by men. He was acquainted with grief. He was despised and not esteemed. He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet in sin, again, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced. He was crushed all because of us. But yet that shows and extends the ministry of Christ. As we endure that which God has decreed for us, you and I then bring that comfort, knowing that God loves us and he'll restore and nourish us. Number three, suffering is an opportunity to trust, relax, and praise God. Now, this seems like a strange word. How in the world through my suffering am I to trust and relax and praise God? The last thing I want to do, all I do is I doubt. And I, I tell you, I'm so jumpy, I don't know what to do. I'm crawling out of my skin. How in the world can I praise God? My marriage is in shambles. My job is, is terrible. My boss hates me. My car is breaking down. Even my dog wants nothing to do with me. I, my life is a country music song. How do you trust and relax and praise God in that? Well, the country music song would just kick back with your bros, pour back some beers and get in your truck. And God has something much better. We're to look to Christ. We're to look to Christ. That's what I love by Psalms 23. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you art with me. Thy rod, thy staff, they comfort me. You and I have something much more precious than anything that the world can give us. It's God's word. That's why the Psalms are so wonderful. Psalms is your biblical spiritual psychiatrist and psychologist. Filled with many laments of those who are suffering, who are hurting. But yet in the midst of that suffering and hurting, continually, continually sing praise to God. Relaxing in him. Does that mean you don't do anything? No, again, it's not that Jesus take the wheel stuff. But it's trusting, relaxing that God has a purpose and plan for your life. Suffering reminds us that something greater is coming. 
I've talked about this before. I enjoy doing funerals more than weddings, believe it or not. Only because funerals is a time in which everyone's eyes is focused on death. And we can encourage them to point them to the right thing. So suffering reminds us that no matter how bad it gets here, I've got something better waiting for me. This life is just temporary. You and I need that reminder probably every day. Set your mind on things above. Set your affections on things above. Where moth and rust cannot decay. Suffering also molds us into the image of Christ. In James 1, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness, excuse me, have its full effect, that you may be perfect or complete, not perfection in your being, lacking in nothing. God is shaping and molding you. And that comes, our biggest measure of growth comes through suffering and hardships, not through joy and pleasant things. But suffering also allows us to submit and glorify God. As Job said, the Lord gave, the Lord's taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And it gives one last note. In all these things, in all the things that Job suffered, he did not sin or charge God with wrong. Naomi is no Job, but he gave comfort to both. God wants to comfort you in your hardships, in your tragedies, in your calamities. Even for those of us who are undergoing consequences of our own sin. Why? Because if we confess that sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the God who is like the, 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 the father of the prodigal son who as soon as he sees his son coming back runs out and, and meets him and embraces him. I've shared this many times if we're coming from the gospel primer that God's love for his children has no mixture of wrath. God is waiting and willing to to forgive you of your sin and to embrace you. So let me come with this. We're getting close to the end. Bear with me. There's two things that Christians need to know about comfort. Number one, comfort comes from God. You'll see this here, I believe. Hopefully I have these verses. First one, Psalms 34. When the righteous cry for help, The Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. Who are the righteous? Those who trust in Christ. Those who confess and repent of their sin. The Lord, he says, is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. Some of you this morning are that way. You've got your mask on. You're smiling. You're telling me that life is good and you're all right and you're going to say that later when we greet each other. But without the mask inside, you're truly brokenhearted and you're crushed. You may not even know how you can get through the next week, the next day. Cry out. Psalms 103, the next one is, A father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. He knows exactly what you're able to handle, what you're able to take. 
David, in many signs, do not destroy me. That, that was Elijah, I think, also made that same cry. Cry out to him. Comfort comes from God and God alone. Quit trying to cope <clears throat> with the circumstances and consequences of your life. Quit trying to deal them away, neglect them away. Embrace them as God's plan for your life and seek the comfort that he's promised. And number two, this is one I just want to spend just a little bit of time, is you and I need to understand <clears throat> that God has ordained the church as the vehicle to bring comfort many times. When God says, I'm going to bring comfort, he does it through other people that commit to do life together and enjoy each other and lift one another up. He has given us spiritual gifts, not so one person can say, look at me, I'm a speaker. Another person can say, I'm a worship leader. Or another can say, I'm an elder or so on and so forth. But he's given you spiritual gifts to lift and build each other up to edify the church. And so as we come here together, I'm calling you not only to come and just be a spectator, but you are called to be a participant in the worship of God as you walk through the door and you pray, Lord, who can I bring comfort and encouragement today? And to be honest, you may never know that you did so, but your, your, friend, your friendliness, your kindness, your generosity to them may be the very comfort that they need. That's why we, we, we encourage you to be part of the church and more than just an attender, but, a, but a, a member who's involved in the life, loving those that God has put you together with. The Holy Spirit has commanded us in Scripture to bear one another's burdens, to weep with those who weep. If one suffers, we all suffer together. And this comes through the preaching and teaching of God's Word the discipling of each other through encouragement, challenging, and even rebuke, and then the lifting up and praying for each other through our worshiping together. In all these things, whether the circumstances of God has put you in or the consequences of your own sinful choices, you and I are called to endure and persevere through suffering and hardships and chastisement. In summary, let's grab a hold of this. God is sovereign and providential over suffering. Everyone will go through some level of suffering. Not everyone suffers equally, and we should not rely on ourselves, but rely on God. But also, God is sovereign and providential, well, not only over suffering, but also on the comfort that he willingly gives. So set your hope, your confident expectation on his deliverance. God uses prayers as a mean of deliverance. And June is expressing that as she says, please pray for me. She's looking for comfort, for, for nourishment. God's deliverance will cause others to praise as we see a life change, as we see those come back to Christ. Hope and prayer are God's means of comfort. So this morning, as we get ready to close, I want to share, if you're a believer here this morning, and by that, I mean not that you grew up in a church, but you have someone who have seen your need for a Savior. You repented of your sin and you put your faith in Christ. Be a Boaz. Be a Ruth. Be worthy. Point to Christ. Be kind, generous, hospitable, and faithful in your calling. For those of you here that might be struggling, whether through hardships but caused by God's circumstance, decree, or by your own sinful choices, 
I'm going to ask you to refocus on the promises of God. For God is a restorer and nourisher. He is the one who will bring comfort to you if you cry out. Don't focus on the calamity and tragedy of life. Many times all we can think is all the things that have gone wrong. We want to point out the failures and everyone else. We need to refocus on what God has called us to focus on. For unbelievers, if you're here this morning and you've never heard the message of Christ, you have not yet accepted, then would you recognize your need for a Redeemer? When it says, Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David, as we see next week, that's a point to the Redeemer, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Would you come in today? And then for our youngest, for those who are teens, your children here, I want to encourage you to think, well, my life is, uh, you know, well, if you're in high school, life is tough. And you're in middle school, I just, I'm sorry. You got to get through those years. In your life, you're struggling because you're not in control of things. It just seems like you're just going along and life just happens to you. And life isn't always pretty. And you're wondering, why in the world is the adults in charge? I agree. But let me tell you, trust in God. For all these things work according to his purpose, for his glory and our good. Amen? Every head bowed, every head closed just for a moment. Oh, first, I'm sorry. Let me close with this first. I've got to follow my own notes. Rejoice in hope. You guys can come on up. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. That's what God has called us to do this morning. All right, with every head prayer and everybody closed for a moment. I don't know what I just said, but follow as best you can. As Randy comes up for pastor's prayer as well. I just want you to take a moment to pause and consider the words given today. God is the source of all comfort. And would you pray and you respond that God may comfort you in your tribulations, in your trespasses, in your testings, in your trials, that you may glorify God and see God's good in your life. Randy, would you come and close us in prayer? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.